Good morning. I'll give you a second chance. Good morning. Man, I've been living in Michigan for over 20 years, and I always brag about the hospitality I get down here from my fellow Buckeye fans, and that's very important to mention that because once people find out I live in Michigan, their first question, which I still don't understand, is, do you still root for the Buckeyes? I live a half an hour from Ann Arbor. You don't know what rooting for the Buckeyes costs when you live half an hour from Ann Arbor, and it costs me something, but this year, they better do it. They better do it because I'm really sticking my neck out, although that last game is up there. Do you know that? This means yes. This mean, yes, yes, yes. You know it's up there, so it's really, really important. Man, those songs we just sang, particularly the last two, those are really powerful, weren't they? And one of the reasons they're powerful is not just how they were so well delivered and led, but they're powerful because they're true. I mean, we're singing to to the God of the universe and about the God of the universe, about his incredible love and about his incredible power to deliver that love. Because it would be one thing if the God of the universe loved us, but he couldn't deliver it to us, right? If he had open arms for us, but not strong arms. But he's got both. And man, that, that just begins with forgiveness. It doesn't end there. Aren't we glad? Aren't we glad that God's love doesn't just stop when we place our trust, for many of us in this room who have done that, place our trust in what Christ did on the cross, that it paid the penalty that I deserve to pay, that you deserve to pay? Isn't it great that his love doesn't stop there? And it doesn't stop like Dan just prayed for all of us with the tough times he guides us through, with how he walks beside us through life's challenges. It doesn't stop there either. But God as our Heavenly Father is so intensely committed to doing something in our hearts, to shaping something inside of us so that we can become more like he wants us to be. You know how the army used to say, be all that you can be? Do they still say that? Well, I think they're a different level than what God has in mind for all we can be. He has it in mind that we could be not only his children, like adopted into his family, but actually, actually act like him, look like him, treat others like him, like God's son. And as you as a church family have been going through 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians is a letter that God inspired through the Apostle Paul to a church family a lot like you guys, a church family in the city of Corinth over in Greece 2,000 years ago. And God was inspiring Paul to speak just the right words to shape and mold and encourage and help the Corinthian church family be all that they could be, both as a family, a group, and as individuals, like you and I. And um, one thing that happens when you read a, through a letter like this, some of the things in the letter get a little bit, I guess you could say, um, practical, organizational, because as he's writing this letter, he's writing to a group of real people, and there's some details he includes, and sometimes when you come to it in the scripture, whether it's in 2 Corinthians or somewhere else, it almost feels like flyover country scripturally, you all know that that's why the country is, right? It's that phrase that people use for us in the Midwest, whether you're in the heart of it all, Ohio, or that state up north. You know, we're all flyover country between the coasts and everything. But sometimes when you're going through a passage, like if, you're, if you've already thumbed to uh, 2 Corinthians, you've already opened there, you'll notice that, there, that this passage we're going to look at today is, in a sense, flyover country because it's between two passages that are really the richest passages in the New Testament about generosity and about giving. 
And so when you, if you thumb to your page, pages of 2 Corinthians, you look at 2 Corinthians 7. Um, most of your Bibles, like mine, have these little headings. How many of you guys have headings in your Bibles you're looking at? It? Most of you. Now, these headings aren't all the same. So my Bible might have different headings than yours because they're not in the original manuscript of the New Testament. But under chapter 7, I have this, this um, heading that says Paul's joy. Most of you say that. I see him nodding. Okay, Paul's joy. Um, chapter 7, he, he ends chapter 7, and Dan talked about this, I think, three weeks ago. Is that right, Dan? He talks about an issue, a, a matter between Paul and the people in Corinth, the church family there, and just how encouraged Paul was with where their hearts were on that. Is that a good summary? I'm not going to get into the gist of it like Dan did. But then you flip the page and you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8. There's another heading up there that says, Generosity and Courage. This is what Tom spoke on two weeks ago. Generosity and Courage. This is the first half of this really rich several paragraph section in the New Testament on giving. And like Paul mentioned, we'll put it up on the screen, the highlight, pivotal, cornerstone verse of it is 2 Corinthians 8-9. This is really the verse that all of it is founded on and all of it flows from. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul reminded the Corinthian church family, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. He gave it away. He was generous. So that you through his poverty might become rich. And obviously, he's not just talking about finances there. He's talking about spiritual condition. He's talking about soul placement for eternity. He's talking about something quite more than just giving of money and investing in his kingdom. Although as he continues to talk, he flows from that into that very topic, which we're going to think about a little bit here in a minute. But right before that sentence, interestingly, We'll flash it up on the screen, too, or you can read it in front of you. He mentions this. Right before that sentence we just looked at, I am not commanding you, he says to the Corinthians, about this matter of giving to the church in Jerusalem, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by doing what? By comparing it with the earnestness of others. And the others he's referring to, as Tom pointed out really clearly two weeks ago, and by the way, the way I know that is I listen to it on the podcast. So I'm a caveman in a high-tech world, but if I can do it, you can do it. So I would really encourage you, if you weren't here a couple weeks ago, if you're on vacation, to go back and listen to it. But Tom very clearly pointed out that Paul, the apostle, was using this other church family, or actually a series of church families in the region of Macedonia, as an example, an inspiring example to challenge and somewhat confront the Corinthian church family. That's what he means by comparing it to the earnestness of others. Because these people he was talking about, the Macedonians, they had generous hearts. They were givers. Okay, so we read the heading, Generosity and Courage in chapter 8. Then, if you flip over to chapter 9, where we'll pick up next week, you as a church family will pick up next week, it says in my Bible, sowing generously, beginning with verse 6 and on down. And that's the second part of this incredibly deep and rich and challenging and inspiring and convicting passage on giving and generosity. But right in between, you might have noticed I skipped it over, there's this little section that says, Titus sent to Corinth. That's what I refer to as flyover country. Flyover country is often when we come to a place in scripture, it's like, 
oh, that was so rich. That was so challenging. And then we go to the next paragraph, and it's like, oh, wait a second. This is talking to somebody else. It doesn't really have anything for me. I'm going to skip ahead. And over the years, that's been my tendency when I read through the Bible consecutively as a, as a good thing to do and very helpful for growth, not just turning to passages that God brings to my heart. That's important too. But to read through sections like this and not to get in the habit like I've so often done of flying over flyover country. So this morning, we're going to land the plane and we're going to drive through it. Okay? The section is 2 Corinthians chapter 8, 16 through 9, 5. And here's a question we want to approach this with. Okay, here's a section that sounds really personal, just between Paul and the Corinthian church family, and really specific to them. What would this have to say to me and you this morning as individuals and as a church family, as life community? What does it look like to put this into action? So keep that question in the front of your hearts, and I'm going to read through without much interruption, maybe no interruption, starting down in verse 16 of chapter 8. This is Paul writing again. He's just finished that rich section part A, and he's getting ready to launch into rich section part B, and here's what he writes. He says, I thank God who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. For Titus not only welcomed our appeal, but he is coming to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative. And we are sending along with him the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. What is more, he was chosen by the churches to, to accompany us as we carry the offering which we administer in order to honor the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift. For we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of men. In addition, we are sending with them our brother who has often proved to us in many ways that he is zealous, and now even more so because of his great confidence in me. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brothers, these other men he's referring to, they are re representatives of the churches and an honor to Christ. Therefore, show these men the proof of your love and the reason for our pride in you so that the churches can see it. We're going to pause there and look at the next few sentences in a moment. But you see how, as you're reading along in 2 Corinthians, as some of you may have done this week before, it's like, whoa, I wonder what this has to say to me. This sounds like just arrangements, detail, practical stuff between Paul and the church in Corinth. And it is. And it was that. But there appear to be at least three reasons, and you could probably think of more, but as I reflected on this passage, there seem to be at least three reasons why Paul sends Titus and crew with what is in effect a letter of commendation. Now, letters of commendation aren't quite as normal in our day and age as they were back then, although some of you might have used a letter of commendation, like if you worked at, I don't know, a pizza hut. You worked at a pizza hut and you were going away to college and you wanted to maybe apply at another pizza hut. You might ask your manager at the first pizza hut, if you were a good employee, that is, you know, to send along a letter of commendation, like, hey, I vouch for this guy. He makes a mean pizza. You know, and you walk, it up to the, you walk it up to the guy at the place you're going to college, that's a letter of commendation. In a sense, what we just read is a letter of commendation that Paul is going to send along with Titus and crew, let's call him, because the other few guys aren't named. But there's at least three reasons why it seems like he sends his letter of commendation and I think goes into some detail about it. The first one is this. 
so that the Corinthians as a church family realizes that this is just not a Paul thing. This is just not a Paul and them kind of matter. Like maybe was being referred to as probably being referred to back in chapter 7. A whole different item, different situation, different issue. That was a Paul and Corinthians thing. Paul wants to make sure that these people realize this is bigger than a Paul thing. That's why I'm going to involve these other guys. I mean, if you look back at verse 16, he says, I thank God who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. Titus has noticed the same kind of things going on in the hearts of the Corinthians, the same kind of things they're wrestling with, same kind of issues. And then he goes on to describe that God's going to use these other men as tools, softening, utensils for their hearts to encourage them as well. So it's not just something that's just about the Corinthian church family. It's bigger than that. And it's not just something that Paul is noticing. It's something that other guys are noticing. So what does that have to do with our day and age? What does it have to do with us this morning as a church family, as individuals? Well, I think one thing is it's a, it's a great reminder that a church family's reputation and like Tom referred to earlier, its impact goes way beyond just what happens within the walls of the relationships in that church family. It goes way beyond that. Like last week, I read about it in the LCC update because I'm on the mailing list. Have been since the beginning of the church family. I'm one of like charter members. Do I get like a free coffee mug for that or something? That'd be cool. But anyway, last week was go day, right? How many of you were able to be in town and be a part of that? That is really sweet. Now, some of you guys heard comments people made, right? Some of you guys heard comments people made about, this is really interesting. You guys are doing what? You're, you're giving up your Sunday morning service time to, to be in my backyard for me, for free? You know, what's, what's going on with this? And, and you could kind of get that an initial sense of impression. But you have to realize something. When we throw out seeds of ministry, whether it's sharing the good news of faith in Christ with other people, or whether it's serving them in an other-centered spirit, whichever way it is, there are seeds that are planted that we don't know what springs up later. And so there are things, and the reason why your leaders guided you to have a go day last week is so that it's a, it's a, a realization that you can have an impact outside your church family, that, that your reputation and impact goes far beyond just the relationships that take place here on Sunday mornings or in cell groups throughout the week. It's something that goes deeper, farther, more longer lasting than that. And it affects other churches elsewhere. Do you realize that when you were out on Go Week last week, that you weren't just representing Life Community, but you were making people think, wow, I had the stereotype of Christians as A, stereotype A. That's kind of being challenged right now. There's something different about these folks. I wonder if other Christians in my life, other churches in my community might be the same way. Now, in this case, the Corinthians had a chance to have an impact on the believers at the church in Jerusalem who were poverty-stricken at the time and really needed this gift that Paul was organizing. But there were also other churches, including those in Macedonia, who, as we'll read here in a moment, were very inspired by the Corinthians' original commitment to say, we want to help, we want to be a part of what God's doing in Jerusalem. And so there's something going on outside of the church family there. What do they call the thing, Tom? Every, every year you do it with the shoe boxes. What is that called? Operation, Operation Christmas Child. I have talked to maybe, because I go around and spend time with different pastors and a ministry I'm a part of. I, I talk with them, and they, 
occasionally somebody will ask, what, what have you heard the other churches do for Christmas? And I often, I've, I can think of at least half a dozen times that I've talked to pastors and leaders of churches and I've said, hey, I have a friend whose church does something called Operation Christmas Child. They said, is that a Franklin Graham kind of a thing? Some of them, that they've heard of it? And I say, yeah. And they said, well, how do they do it within their church? And I describe it a little bit because I actually read the LCC update. So I, I know how it works. And so I, I, I read it and I pass it on to them and they say, that's a phenomenal idea. Well, you see, your ministry to these children has a ministry outside just to the children. There's other churches in God's kingdom that see it, they look on, and it's, it has a remarkable ripple effect. That's what, I think that's one of the reasons why Paul is sending Titus and crew, to, to remind them of that. This is not just a Corinth-Paul deal. This has a big ripple effect. I think there's another reason he does it, is he wants, he wants them to know that this is not just a Paul personality-led kind of deal. This is a team thing. That other guys like Titus, he mentions, have the same perspective he has. There's a verse in the book of Proverbs that goes like this. In the multitude of counselors, there is safety. In other words, when a lot of people who are leaders, who look over your hearts as an individual, as a church family, have the same perspective on what's going on in your heart spiritually and what needs to happen in your heart spiritually, when you have a number of people with that same perspective, it gives it more power. It gives it more credence. Because even though the Apostle Paul might be accurate most of the time, he might not have had the most full and balanced perspective on what was going on in the hearts of the Corinthian church family. These other guys back it up. And these other guys, just like your church leaders here, elders, small group leaders, whoever they might be, the more people that are involved in actively encouraging to go a certain direction in your heart, the more weight there is to that. I think that's another reason why he sent along a crew and didn't just go himself. Here's a second reason. So that the Corinthians understood that their investment was being handled with full integrity. With full integrity. Now, I'm a guy that is not naturally suspicious, okay? Like, I would be a terrible detective. Because to be a good detective, you gotta think like a criminal. I've got a detective that lives to my left in my house in Michigan, undercover detective, and I have a, uh, an Oakland County sheriff that lives to my right side, okay? And so I talk to these guys all the time, and they're, and they're always just, oh, they'll say something when we're you know, talking over the hedges, and I'll say, oh, I never thought about that. Never thought of that scam. Never thought of that scheme. I kind of talk with them. But you know what's happened, unfortunately? Is down through the years, unfortunately, I've heard enough and read enough news to realize, gosh, there's a lot of giving out there that's not being handled with real integrity. Whether it's the government wasting money that should be going to welfare. I heard Paul Harvey throw out a statistic years ago about the percentage of money since the, um, what they call it back in the days of Lyndon Beans Johnson, the war on poverty, what was it called? It was something about, the war on poverty started back then. And since then, the, the percentage of money that's actually reached the hands of the poor is staggeringly low compared to the money that's, that's required to keep the infrastructure of programs and you know, government officials going. It's just phenomenal. And it's like, man, that's incredible. And then you hear about it with some charities. It's like, whoa, there's malfeasance. There's, you know, people kind of taking money. And then a few times, and it only takes a few, right? A few times you hear about churches. 
how could they do such a how can they do that with people's money you know that they're doing that and sometimes it bothers you more than others sometimes when it's not my money i laugh at it instead of get bothered by it i came across this internet story that goes like this outside england's bristol zoo that's a pretty large city in london there is a parking lot for 150 cars and eight buses for 25 years, its parking fees were managed by a very pleasant attendant. And he would only collect a dollar forty or so or a pound forty, whatever it is, for buses and about seven dollars, seven dollars for buses, a buck and a half, let's call it, for cars. Then one day after 25 solid years of never missing a day of work, he just didn't show up. So the zoo management called the city council and asked to send another parking agent over to take the guy's place. The council did some research and replied to the zoo folks that the parking lot was the zoo's own responsibility. The zoo advised the council that the parking attendant was a city employee. That's what their understanding was. The city council responded that the last attendant had never been on the city payroll. Meanwhile, probably sitting in his villa somewhere on the coast of Spain or France or Italy, is a man who'd apparently had a ticket booth installed completely on his own. And then had simply begun to show up every day, collecting the money and keeping the parking fees, estimated at about 560 bucks a day for 25 years, assuming seven days a week, that amounts to just over $7 million. And no one even knows his name. <laughs> now, you know, read something like that and you laugh. Because I never went to the Bristol Zoo. You know, I wasn't a founding member that it was like, man, all that money I gave and this guy's, you know, he took it somewhere. Now, I did do a Snopes.com check on that. And um, it doesn't seem like that's a true story. It's kind of like a genre of an urban legend that works that way. Okay. But at the same time, it did say in Snopes.com that they did call the Bristol County Zoo to see if it was true. And repeatedly, three times over, the Bristol County Zoo said, or City Zoo, no, that never happened. Never. No, no, it didn't happen. But I, but I thought about it, I thought, if it had happened, and if Snopes.com called, would they really say, yeah, it did, yeah, we were, we were completely schnookered in the whole deal, you know. So I don't know, but, but you get the point, right? The point is, when it's somebody else's money, it's kind of funny. But when you're paying the taxes, or when you're giving, or when you're investing in something, it gets a little bit more serious, especially when you do it sacrificially. And so Paul went to great lengths here to talk about how it's very important that everything financial when it comes to church giving, church family investment, is done with integrity. Down in verse 19, he reminds them that this integrity is something that brings a smile to God's face. He says in 19, what is more, he was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry the offering which we administer, which means oversee, organize, in order to honor the Lord himself. But it doesn't just honor God. It honors the people who give. Look at verse 21. For we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, Paul said, but also in the eyes of men. And trust in the leadership of a church family or a ministry is vital when it comes to unleashing the generosity of our hearts. It's, it's incredible. Like for years and years, it never struck me that when I would put money in an offering plate, I know that you don't collect offerings that way in the Life Church family, as most churches do. But it never struck me that at the churches I went to, when I put money in the offering plate, that as I put it down, that there was a chance 
it might not have been handled with integrity starting at the point it reached the end of the rope. You know, that never even occurred to me. It occurred to Paul. It occurred to Paul because it's something that people with more, maybe they're less naive than I am, it occurs to them. And so he, he went to great extremes to let them know this is going to be handled with integrity. Another reason he sent in a team, not just one person. If you flash up on the screen, 1 Corinthians 16.3, this is from the, a previous letter Paul had sent to the Corinthians. Look at what he said. He said, then when I arrive, looking to the future at that point, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. So part of the plan was, it wasn't just these Macedonian reps that were being talked about. It wasn't just Titus and maybe Paul that was going to accompany this gift to Jerusalem. But the Corinthians were going to be able to send along some of their folks as well. You know, and I think it's pretty obvious how that applies to today, right? It's really appropriate for us to want to know that our sacrificial gifts, our investments in what God is doing, that they reach their target. That it really does reach those that we're hoping to impact through it. I, um, I'm a big Reds fan. You know, don't get much Reds coverage up there. Big Reds fan. My nephew, who lives in Baltimore, Maryland, became a Reds fan a couple years ago and has been following them pretty strongly. My nephew, I got to take him to a Reds game. He's never seen the Reds win live. He was like 0-5 going into yesterday, okay? So what I had done was I had my daughter kind of make up a mock ticket, send him a birthday card. He opened it up, and my sister said, you wouldn't have believed his eyes when he saw that I was, his uncle was going to take him to a live Reds game. I didn't guarantee a victory. They won, which was great, but I didn't guarantee a victory. He was just excited. Just, well, you know what? When we give to people bigger than a Reds ticket to a nephew, when we give to people through, our, through a ministry to Venezuela, when we give to people through Go, when we give to people through how, as a church life community, extends themselves into the community here in Hilliard, as we give, we want to see, we want to know that it reaches its target. And if we can see it and hear about it, it's like bonus, right? It's like bonus material. And that's what Paul is expressing to the Corinthians. And just like every other full integrity church family or church ministry, it's important to know that what you give is put into action for Christ's sake. Different churches that have that as a, as a high commitment like Life Community does, do that in different ways. Some churches have an annual meeting where they show where all the investments go to missions, to missionaries, to local outreach, to providing for the pastoral staff so you can extend into the community. There's all sorts of ways it might show up. Here at Life, I was asking Tom earlier today, and he said, at Life Community, we make available in an open way to anybody who wants to see where their giving investment goes. See, that's a mark of a full integrity church that Paul was wanting the Corinthians to be and letting him know, letting them know that he was too. I, um, I, I remember the first time I heard a pastor, again, being my naive, non-suspicious, non-detective type personality kind of guy, I remember the first time that I heard a pastor say, you know what, I don't know what each of you in the church family gives. I thought, you don't? I thought that was the job of the pastor to speak on Sunday morning and know how much everybody gave. You know, I thought those were his two main job descriptions, you know? And, oh, that really impacted me. And by the way, the pastoral staff here and the elders here at Life Community have no idea what individuals give. 
And that's a very healthy situation to have because it, it keeps you in the clear. It keeps you in the, in the area of full integrity. I have heard stories of pastors who do know what the church family gives, and they, ha- they schedule their lunch appointments accordingly, if you catch my drift. And obviously, that's not full integrity. And, he, and knowing that the procedures that are gone through are careful, that your investments are handled that way, is vital. But that's the second reason I think that Paul sends Titus and crew with all these details. The third reason is this, so that the Corinthians could see good models of other leaders. I mean, these guys that Paul was sending were spiritually sweet. I mean, they were mature. They were other-centered. They were everything opposite of these other leaders that were infiltrating the Corinthian church family were like. They were just like fine, upstanding, full of integrity kind of guys. And he had already described these Macedonians, and now he was going to send along, along a couple examples that the Corinthian church family would have a chance to meet up close and personal. And he used Titus as an example of somebody who really cared for their souls, more than for the giving project, making sure the thermometer reaches the red to the top of the scale, right? More than that, he wanted them to understand he cared for their hearts. 2 Corinthians 12, 14, no need to flip there, look up on the screen. 2 Corinthians 12, 14 reminds us of what Paul's aim was with their hearts. I'm sorry, right before that one, Janet. Flip back one. There we go. One more between it in between. There we go. Now I am ready to visit you for the third time, Paul wrote, and I will not be a burden to you because what I want is not your possessions, but you. Isn't that, isn't that a pretty vulnerable thing to say? I, you know, I'm not, I, I'm not going after your money. It's, that's not what's in it for me. What's in it for me is your hearts. The state of the generous flow of God's love through you that originated with Christ making himself poor for your sake. That's what I want to see poured through you. And today, obviously, when we read or hear about these people that are the likes of which Paul is sending along with Titus, we're inspired, right? How many of you can think of somebody from maybe even, well, definitely outside of your church family, but maybe outside of our culture, outside of our community, maybe they live in the States, maybe they live abroad, you've heard about somebody who they're giving in their spirit, like Paul kept using the Macedonians over and over again as an example for the Corinthians. How how many of you can think about somebody who's been an inspiring example of generosity to you? I I heard it had a missionary conversation with a missionary from India back when Tom and I were on pastoral staff together in Akron. And he talked about these guys that that if we gave $115, that would give them a bicycle to take the good news of Jesus Christ into these small villages in northern India, that they would need $15 a week for like food and expenses. And I was like, oh, these people are giving up their lives and they're $115 a week? And, but then, of course, being the practical guy that I am, I said, okay, but how do they carry their stuff? Like their backpacks. And the missionary got a little bit misty-eyed. And he said, oh, that's not really an issue. I said, why not? He said, well, when they go to towns, whatever they close, they go with, they usually leave them with the people there. They usually just ride away on their bicycle with a shirt on their back. I picture that when I picture generosity. Maybe some of you are in the thicket like that. I have a good friend who's, a, who's a, an Albanian who had fled the communist regime and went back when communism fell. 
and he's a church planning pastor in, in Albania, and he receives a very meager support from several churches. But you know what most of his meager support tends to go to? Helping other people in his church family. Providing for their needs, making sure they have food on the table. When I think of other inspiring examples, I think of those. What are your images? What are the images, like Paul was using the Macedonians for the Corinthians' sake, what are the images for you that spark that kind of softness and that encouragement? And then he launches into this last paragraph, which I'll read and just make a couple quick comments on. Chapter 9, verse 1. There is no need for me to write to you about this service to the saints, for I know your eagerness to help, and I have been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year, you guys were ready to give, and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. But I am sending the brothers, this crew, in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow, but that you may be ready as I said you would be. For if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not one grudgingly given. For those of you who were here two weeks ago, Paul, as Tom reminded us, related to the Corinthians out of positive presumption. I would say in this paragraph, he takes that to a different level. He takes it to the level of challenging. Be inspired by the Macedonians' example and don't disappoint them in the commitment you've made. And then there's at least two observations on this passage that springboards into the second half of this rich section on generosity and giving, which you'll think about next week. But the first observation is this. Paul's telling them, if you finish strong in your commitment, if you deliver the way that you had committed yourself to and the way that you ought to give, it's going to have way more impact than just expressing your original desire would have had. The Macedonians were triggered into action by the inspiration of hearing the commitment of the Corinthians. But that's nothing compared to the impact that it will have on the Macedonians when they hear what the Corinthians actually did, what they actually invested. And the second observation, as you leapfrog that passage on giving, is that finishing strong will just have a ripple effect like we talked about earlier. If you just jump ahead real quickly to chapter 9, verse 12, he starts talking about this service, this investment that you perform, verse 12, is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you've proved yourselves, he's going back to positive presumption, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. It wasn't just a smile coming to their heavenly father's face that was going to be the impact of this. It was the impact on others. And the very last sentence he mentions before he goes into that section that my Bible labels sowing generously, last sentence down there in verse 5, he says, then when all this is considered, it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given, which is a very interesting play on words, grudgingly given. Grudgingly it comes from the root word greed. Wait a second, isn't greed the opposite of generosity, the opposite of giving? Yeah, that's what makes it a very interesting play on words. What does Paul mean by that, grudgingly given? How do you give something greedily? 
How do you give something without your heart being fully generous? Well, I think Corey Ten Boom, you might have seen a preview of this here a moment ago. I think Corey Ten Boom put it in a great words, I think the spirit of this passage. He said in the next slide, hold everything in your hands lightly. This was her attitude toward generosity and giving. Otherwise, it hurts when God pries your fingers open. And I think what Paul was trying to do was trying to be God's instrument to pry their fingers open. He was sensing that there was something, for some reason, in their hearts as a church family and perhaps even individually, that they were hanging on to something instead of like the Macedonians who gave generously even though they were poor, even though they didn't have enough to give. So I think those are some reasons why this flyover passage are really vital for us today as church families around the country and around the world, but also as individuals. So I would encourage you this week as you maybe prepare for next week and you get ready to launch into that second section on this really, really inspiring and convicting passage of these two passages that bookend what we read over in flyover country this morning. I would encourage you to reread it and say, God, what do you have to say to me through this? And maybe the small group I'm a part of, how can I encourage others in that small group to be like Corey Timboom described, people who don't give grudgingly? How can we be those kind of people?